if you're the majority of your work, with the exception uh, of uh, one or two things, has been recorded in front of an audience. Um, in terms of you know panel games, but also Blackadder series two, three, and four. Yeah. Um, Spitting image, not. No. Um, but that has a very. I mean, that's impossible. Practically impossible to have recorded that in front of an audience. I would imagine. On top yeah, of it, yeah, we did occasionally do very short live <coughs> things, but it's too complicated oh, to get the yeah. shots. Yeah. Um, uh, but know, and a lot of commercials. I spent more than ten years shooting ads, which shouldn't have audiences. Yeah. But overall, it feels like there is a, there is a there is a democracy of an audience yeah. that sort of says, "Well, they that got a laugh." I don't it's know a, what you think they're laughing at. It's the that. wisdom of crowds. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that's because all my generation of comedy came through stage theatre mm. comedy you know mm. there weren't stand-ups in those days but sketch comedy and monologues and things and that is you know I, I absolutely respect the audience uh, in both in the studio and at large mm. one of the reasons I think I'm, I've done okay in broadcasting is because I like people mm. I mean I genuinely like or, what people say ordinary people most people at senior levels in uh, television, if they met what they would consider an ordinary working class person, they would either run a mile or they would find them not their cup of tea. Well, I mean, embarrassing. But mm. part of the reason for that is that rather than do a gap year or hitchhiking around the place, because I, my dad was in the Navy, so we'd travel all my childhood, I, wanted, I needed some money. And I was an Essex builder for a year. <laughs> I started the tea boy and... Uh, and then they, they taught me to, uh, they let me drive the van to go and get the sand and the cement, and then they taught me to rub down doors and and then mix um, mix cement and plaster and tile and all that kind of stuff. And it was the best job I've ever had. It's absolutely brilliant. And so there should be a blue plaque on one of those. Surely that's the place to put the John Lloyd blue plaque. Surely. But although you know <laughs> I, they took the piss out of me, you know they were classic right conservative yeah. working class yeah. blokes yeah. who yeah. thought you know I was a lefty yeah. long haired idiot but we had really good jokes we used to go to the pub every night and uh, I'd say they had different politics to me but they were very very bright and very good at arguing and they taught me an enormous amount and one particular thing is that you know, I, I, I learned then that just because a person doesn't have a degree doesn't mean they're stupid. There's a difference, mm. a massive and complete difference between intelligence and knowledge. Mm. Um, and, uh, and, and quite often very little crossover between the two. Uh, and so I've always believed that if I like it, then everybody will like it. To, to a degree, not everybody, but a substantial proportion of people. Mm. Um, so I, I, I really mean that I respect the audience because I like those people. You know, I, I, I talk to anybody and I think that they, what the audience deserves is not what we think they want. That's patronising and mm. creepy. What is what we discover that everybody will like on their behalf. The audience doesn't want to decide what they get. But that's what we're there for. Mm. Yes. Yes, yeah. You know, it's like if you go to a restaurant and um, they say, what would you like? And, you know, so you wouldn't ask the audience to go and cook the meal. Mm. That's what they've come to a restaurant for, yeah. to have a meal better there's than always the one they're going to have. Every own. now and then there's always a, wouldn't it be great if the audience could choose the ending of the show? No! <laughs> no, it <wouldn't. laughs> no, it wouldn't. That would be worse. But ju- just going back to your point about rejection, yes. I mean... That, that is the, I say that's the big elephant in the room because if the person rejecting it is not qualified to opine whether it's good or not because mm. they won't, they're all qualified. Mm. But it is the case that most things you can ask, let's not say a five year old child, but a 10 year old child, and certainly a 15 year old uh, young person, most. 15-year-olds in the street would be more worth asking if they can read, do you like my script, than Mm. most commissioners, Mm. because that person is going to tell you the truth rather than what they perceive to be somebody else's truth. Mm. So rejection, my heart bleeds for uh, writers, particularly in comedy uh, at the moment. Um, um, So uh, one of my best friends, uh, both best friends, a couple, uh, their son has just had a... um, a sitcom idea picked up by a, a, a major production company. It's so exciting for him because I can't remember how many years he's been 
trying to do is it, is it seven eight years something like mm-hmm. that and you've had yeah. nibbles and he's made a film at his own expense and you think I read his first script I thought it was really good mm-hmm. and back in the day when I was a you know proper producer I'd, if I if I'd met this guy then I'd have said yeah let's make this mm-hmm. I'll go and, I'll go and talk to somebody of course it's not perfect but that's mm-hmm. what producers are for yeah. let me help you let's tweak this and uh, you know and it's there's nothing wrong with notes I've done that all my life but I, what I hope is I'm right and what I want is the writer go oh that's brilliant that, god that's such a good idea yeah or my, my, one of my definitions of a good note is when I give notes to people I'm saying I hope that I'm telling you something that you secretly know yes. but have su- sufficiently suppressed uh, that, that is know. exactly uh, James, what I feel I do as a producer, I'm the writer's conscience. Yes, <laughs> I'm saying you know, you you know, I know you're being very defensive about this line mm. because you know and I know that it's not it's not what you're capable of doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I know what this line you wrote last week. That's what you can do. Yeah. and it's to say, which is I say that is like being a parent or being a producer. The thing is, uh, or a gardener. Yeah is to encourage yes. the thing to become something better than it dreamt it could be. You're fertilising and pruning, aren't yeah. you? And the pruning yeah. process is a little bit... thing, But you have to do it to get the tree to grow. It's, 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 it is painful. It's, you know, the pruning is, is painful and, and makes people you know, uncomfortable and sometimes angry. But what you want... I mean, I think of all the arguments we had all the way through Blackadder about mm. stuff. Mm. I haven't noticed people involved in Blackadder going, do you know, I don't think it was very good... You know, um, <laughs> John interfered too much, and you know, yeah. most people go, I'm very proud to be associated with that. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and we all are, and yeah. we've actually forgotten the pain, and all that remains is the work. Just just before we get to Black, yeah. I'd I just like to tell one story uh, because it's pertinent, I suppose, to what you're saying in, in, for, for, for writers. Uh, and when I first uh, came to London, I was at a left my job and I was getting some work as a stand-up and some work as a, a comedy writer but I wasn't uh, I, you know, I, nobody knew who I was and uh, I'd heard about this uh, new show that was starting up with a topical comedy show with puppets and uh, you know, it sounded amazing and uh, I just wrote a letter because that's what you did then uh, to the producer. A doc, it's like a document, yeah, isn't yeah. it? But but you hold it in your hand. That's right. And I may have sent some ideas or something. I can't remember. And because um, it was an article in the newspaper, the producer's called John Lloyd, and so I wrote, dear John Lloyd, I've written a bit for Weekending, blah blah blah. Here's some ideas, uh, and. Not only did I get a, a letter back, I've been saying, John said, uh, right, okay, yes, yeah, so come in, come, come, come and meet me, and we'll talk about things. And I went in, and it was a, it was a, it was a warehouse in the Docklands. Yes, at, Limehouse. At yeah. that point, yeah, Limehouse, and um, and spitting images of that. I subsequently ended up years later, sort of writing writing for but uh, I mean one of the hardest shows to make ever, ever, anything that could possibly uh, get in the way of, 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 a, of a topical comedy show being made with puppets and puppeteers and I mean it was just the most phenomenal logistical uh, nightmare, nightmare. Yeah. Uh, and I t- happened to turn up in, in the middle of one of your kind of typical crises I think mm. and but you gave me the time you showed me round you showed me all the puppets the whole thing and it was a sort of defining moment for me as a, as a starting out writer. It was like, oh, that, oh, this is what happens. You come to London and producers, <laughs> you know, producers mm. meet you and they show you their shows yeah. and things. And never happened again for another twenty five years, <laughs> I think. But it does but, require a bit of that moment, yeah. though, doesn't it? Go on, sorry. I was just going to say mm. that 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 moment probably gave me more confidence as a, as a writer than anything that, 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 that sort of happened. And, and that, that, that helped me over the years with, with, with you know, the, the years of rejection we get to know, well, yeah. actually, here was a producer valuing me as a writer. And, you know, that's, if there are any producers who are listening out there, you know, val- value your writers. That's, I just wanted to get that. Well, I, had, I mean, I had a similar experience on... on um, uh, weekending because um, in the days when 
n- nobody's could walk into the BBC and write for the show and be part of a meeting and I wrote some sketches and um, I didn't get anything on the first few weeks but I then sat down with the then script editor called I think it isn't a comedy writer anymore called Felix Riley do you remember Felix? Oh, yes, um, he it. sat down with me and I'd written sketches at university and I, I knew a bit but I didn't, I didn't know that I knew and um, he sat down with me and I'd written a sketch about Michael Palin going into space for his new you know, TV programme so there was a space launch thing and I thought oh let's have Michael Palin blah 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 and um, you know it didn't really work as a sketch but, but Felix sat there with me and he said um, okay so um, this sketch here you've got a bit of a problem with this you know, and I'm like sitting there thinking oh. and he looks at me and he goes oh I'm only telling you this because you're good so I had nothing on the show. I hadn't got it. He just—he basically just said in that one moment, oh, you, you can do this. It's, it's fine. This, you know, this is the sort of stuff you need to be thinking about. One conversation mm. with an actual human being who says, "You're fine. You're good." It's kind of, you know, and I, whenever I see good writing like that, I'm always at pains just to say, "You can, you can write." By the way, yeah. um, here are some things to maybe think about. <coughs> but that physical, personal thing, and, and I guess you were probably. There's quite a lot of people who you we would have had that impact on. Who I mean, in terms of Blackadder, uh, Richard Curtis and Ben Elton would have been relatively experienced by the time. But even then, you sort of don't quite know. It, it seems inevitable now, looking back on the team that you had, that this was going to be obviously yeah. a great success. But it it it, it you know it, it nearly didn't make it past pilots and even the first series. And I'm wondering. Sort of moving on slightly, what what do you see within writers like that that you worked with that they do well and things that you just think, oh, the reason that they did that is because they they had these sorts of habits. Or what sort of good habits have you noticed with with good writers? Um, I think it's my life experience that everybody needs an editor. Mm-hmm. You know, I like I always show everything to my wife, who was an editor in publishing for ten years before I met her. I really respect her taste and judgment, you know. And like any writer, sometimes you go, well, I, I like that line. And she'll, nah, darling, honestly, it is, please don't do that. You, you look like an idiot. Uh, and I think that uh, I believe that everybody works better in teams. That's why, they, you know, mm. to a pair of people mm. writing, you're more likely to, you know, you've got to be honest with each other. You've got to say that is rubbish, that mm. line. And even if you fight a bit... I think it's a big mistake ever to believe your own myth, um, to believe you shouldn't take credit for things, uh, all, all this sort of stuff. And uh, uh, sorry, I'm having a, a bit of a I've lost my thread, James. Just no, it's all right. I'm just saying. talking about what, what what makes good writers. What what, what do you think? Because presumably uh, the first series of Blackadder was written by uh, Rowan Atkinson and. Richard Curtis, is that correct? In theory. I mean, Roan actually is not and never has been a writer. He's a brilliant uh, uh, creator. He's a Mm. brilliant interpreter of writing. Mm. Apart from, he writes the most beautiful thank you letters of anyone I ever ever met, quite literally. But that is really the limit of his writing skills. Thank you. Thank you. Well, what a lovely thing to be to be remembered. Uh, uh, somewhere a commissioner. He's a genius in, in, in many ways. Thank you, mate. That's right. It's beautiful yeah. handwritten. That was a show. That's a show. And so it was very difficult with Ryan. We had to fire him because he is very indecisive in that context. Right. We had to get rid of him and tell him, just get on with the acting role. And, and I helped Richard, you know, mm. edit uh, the, the, the early f- first series. But... Um, what lessons do writers learn? I mean, I think that, um, I don't know, I think that they can get into a place where they think that it would be better if they didn't have editors anymore. Mm-hmm. And I think that's usually a disaster. Mm. I think every writer needs to uh, needs help because Douglas Adams is great dictum, any fool can write, but only a writer can cut. A great writer, as we know, most mm. writing is actually rewriting and editing and mm. pruning and chipping away and then until you get to something that's so, so perfect and simple and clear that it's mm. done it's very hard to do that on your own mm. I've never written a novel for example I've never completed a film script I honestly don't know how people do it and I certainly don't mm. know how they do it on their own it's, it's beyond mm. me a great novel I mean I, I, I don't have that sort of that mm. talent I also get the sense that in the in, I remember seeing a 
in one of the many doc- I've now vowed not to watch any more documentaries about the making of comedy programmes that I love because I've now seen three documentaries on every single show that I love but the there's a there's a clip of a rehearse small a read through rehearsal of Blackadder Goes Forth yeah. and it's only when I saw that clip I just thought oh blimey whoever's you know they're, they're writing a script and then the script is being read by Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie and Tony Robinson and all of these people have their own ideas and are writers in their own right and would presumably interrogate every single yes, line every mm-hmm. syllable literally um, every syllable to, to death but at the same time so we've got to record the damn thing on Friday yeah. we've got <laughs> yeah. it was very difficult and, and uh, we never finished the script until right at the last minute and Paul Rowan had to go home and learn this enormous part uh, yeah but you know again you have to say well the pain's worth it isn't it it's mm-hmm. like you know, there's probably too many editors in, mm. in that room, but I mean, it did produce results. And I think that, uh, you know, it's famously, I say, actually, Blackadder was made in many ways more like the way Monty Python was made than the way, uh, let's say, Only Fools and Horses mm. came to be. So, yeah. so, uh, what's interesting to me as well from series one to series two, it's sort of like you, you took, um, I don't know. John Osborne and Alan Aikborn and put put them together. You took this kind of the you know the kind of the, the the successful conventionally successful you know two brilliant writers, but from very different uh, mm. backgrounds from uh, and and putting them together. I mean, a lot of writing partnerships kind of they they you know they take take years to. To, to form really, and a lot of people like you know Marks and Graham, they were sort of ten years old when they they met, and but putting together two successful, very different writers, how how much were you involved at that stage really? Well, um, the first four episodes of the second series, um, I, I suppose, because they were fresh to it and they were Ben was very honoured to be asked and very enthusiastic and energetic and Richard was incredibly grateful he'd agreed because it was so much easier than working with Rowan and they really nailed those which was fortunate because when Blackadder was cancelled after series one we had very good material we 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 took a whole weekend to take out everything in well it wasn't that they hated Blackadder one but it wasn't considered worth the money for the ratings it got. It was too expensive for the, for the slot and the, the success of it. So we spent this weekend making all the scripts very cheap, taking out all the film sequences, uh, cutting down the number of actors, re- reducing the sets and all that mm. to produce something that was manifestly what they call a strand average sitcom. It's <laughs> as cheap as a thing with a couple of sofas in it, you know? Yeah. Uh, which is why you have... Um, we, justified it later on why Queenie has a tiny little room because we say well because she's a child she has a child's bedroom mm. but the truth of it was we couldn't afford a palace yes yeah uh, and so they worked very well at the beginning and then what they used to do was they would agree the period with usually in discussion with me and then they'd write three eps each and then swap them over and rewrite and by the end they were rewriting 70% of each other's material mm. because one of the difficult things about Blackadder, we wrote, made the series every two years, and all of us had become more successful, more powerful, yes. more famous in the interim. Mm-hmm. So you have in the same room, you know, you've got an international best-selling novelist, the guy who started Comic Relief and is used to, you know, Richard's word is law at Comic Relief. Yeah. If he says, don't like the poster, oh, you know, and it, it's run because it's his personal taste and fief, and he's brilliant at it and has raised, obviously you know, untold mm-hmm. millions of, mm-hmm. of pounds. Mm-hmm. And I was running Spitting Image, the most successful, probably, light entertainment show on television with vast audiences, huge, a huge crew, with 60 people in the crew and a thousand puppets. Mm-hmm. The only way to make that was John Lloyd's word. If John wants that, that's what he's going to have. And I mm-hmm. spent two years making sure, because that was the only way to run it it had to be one person had to know every single fact about mm-hmm. the thing or, or it all fell to bits right. there had to be a you know sort of a uber editor and so we'd all come to the rehearsal room used to just being click your fingers and it happens he'd never had to give orders Richard mm-hmm. gets never given an order in his life it's just if he goes hmm, I wonder there is done <laughs> and I was used to that also especially as a as a film director you know Gun, Dunn Governor is there sir 
Hmm. What was the camera? Yeah, it's a dancer. <laughs> uh, and so then we'd all have this thing and it was like hang on a minute somebody just disagreed with me what the fuck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. and we all felt that we all felt it was um, we didn't think we were big egotists because there are no you know there are no ghastly people in that crew mm-hmm. there, are no, there are no people who are you know grotesquely vain or you know annoyingly arrogant they're all very intelligent mm-hmm. nice people but it is a shock to the system yeah. where you, you know, if well, you're Richard yeah. Kurtz, the most famous film writer probably yeah. in Britain, mm-hmm. and certainly in comedy and of all time, almost most successful. And then somebody's saying, "I don't like the, this line." Would it be funny? I tell you what, it'd be funny. What'd yeah. be funny of this? Oh, what, I, dare you. Yeah, I, dare I, you. I thought what I yeah. what I thought would be funny. I wrote down on the yeah. script. Yeah. Do that because um, what it, it, I guess during the course of the show. You became a supergroup because you all went off and did things, came yeah. back, yeah. and it was just like. And by we the were end, the travelling Wilburys, absolutely. <laughs> no. no, I think that's true. And I, again, you, when it's such a long time ago now, you stand back and you see the pattern and you see the rationale of it and mm. the logic. Mm. Uh, but at the time, it just seems annoying and difficult and uh, um, an accidental, you know, piece of good fortune. And you know, oh gosh, we got away with that, didn't we? But again, I guess it goes back to what you were saying about archaeology digging. Mm. You found you actually found something. You bumped into the truth there, and it just had that magic to it that it's just so hard. Because because now it's I mean we've all pitched historical sitcoms subsequently, and um, you ruined it. That's another thing about you know the, the commissioning system is like this is the way it works. Okay, so Peter Fincham's a great friend of mine, and uh, he's saying, look, you know, he, he probably be remembered in his life. Well, there's the Queen Gate scandal, mm. but that will mm. fade. But he'll be remembered as the man who commissioned Downton Abbey, mm-hmm. one of the most successful programs mm. worldwide ever to come out of ITV. Huge in China and mm. all over the, you know, probably huge there. And this idea came to him and he said, oh, I like this, we'll do this. And all the people at senior levels had been tittered behind their hands. He's a complete idiot. You think Edwardian, Edwardian drama? Mm. This went out in the 70s. Mm. It was ridiculous. Yeah. But, you know, Peter's a very determined person and he pushed it through and, of course, it was huge straight away. Mm. Uh, and suddenly everyone's scaring, oh, that's what they want. That's what people want. They want Edwardian drama. And so you have Mr. Selfridge and you have upstairs, downstairs, and suddenly people are all panicking. So oh, that's what they want. No, people don't want that. What they want is quality. Yeah, yeah, and they want belief. And, you know, um, what those people, you know, the, the people who, who came up with that idea, they believed in it. Mm. It was their truth. Mm. Uh, and, and that's the... The thing it's no good. We should do the opposite. If if there's one historical sitcoms as a success, you said we won't do that. Well, let's do something else. Now. Yeah. Well, we're very lucky with horrible histories because that was you know under the radar as a as a children's program. But that I mean the influence of uh, Blackadder and, and Python very yeah. very strong yeah. influences on that show. Is that what um, you you write then? He, he writes the songs. I write the songs. Do you? Yeah. yeah. I just I just wish I wrote for horrible histories. <laughs> but that's yeah. You know, but the beauty, all the other, the other beauty of um, just incidentally the, of Blackout, obviously, is the fact that because it's a historical show, it doesn't date. Yes, um, because again, excellent. Nobody that was yeah, not. You can just, that. you can, you know, it, it's on, it's on some channel every single night of the week somewhere. You'll find an episode of Blackadder, mm. and I find it impossible to turn it off once I'm about to go to bed. Flick, mm. oh, it's halfway through. Duke of Wellington, <laughs> excellent. You know, I'm going to watch this to the end yeah. before I go to bed. It doesn't date, mm. um, you know, because of those, because it's sort of studio, the costumes and everything. It has that, not not only has it got a timeless truth to it, but it, it, it also doesn't date. There, there are shows which are of their time and have a timelessness, but because of all that. So the, the other thing, I, I used Blackout as an example the other day of for plotting um, in terms of how can you make things so terrible for your protagonist that there's no possible way back for them? You want to make it as awful as possible for your protagonist. And the Executioner episode, I think, is such a great example of well, he's executed him. <laughs> he's, he's, he's cut his head off and she's come to visit him. 
get out of that. I mean, it doesn't get any harder than that. I mean, that's such a wonderful... Yeah, uh, uh, yeah that's a brilliant... But just song. amazing plotting yeah. as well. It's just absolutely bulletproof mm. jokes yeah. that, was, that I've basically memorised, mm. so I'm not going to bore you with them. We haven't <laughs> even <laughs> mentioned, we're an hour and quarter in here, we haven't even mentioned that you actually, you actually uh, came up with To the Man and Born. Is that, that correct? Was that your well, uh, yeah, I did. Mm-hmm. Pete Spence uh, wrote it, but yeah. I was very close to Pete we worked together on all sorts of things and we, we sat down specifically to you know he said well, should we just put a sitcom together you know you know, let's see if we can work out how they're done we did a lot of studying thinking you know how, what's the sitcom theory okay so the people have to be sort of trapped it's not with, with a movie the characters are different at the end of the movie than mm. they were at the beginning in sitcom they're the same and so they, they're caught in a hamster wheel mm. so you need a situation that's what the situation is what's the trap these people are in that they can't escape then you need um, a set of characters that you care about whether you don't like them or you do like them and then you need uh, you know some sort of uh, the grit in the oyster what's the conflict that mm. You know, creates the difficulty that means that episode happens and then it all resolves um, in a satisfactory or, or amusing way. And so we thought, well, you know, money—that's the sort of thing people cause people class. That's another one. Money and class is kind of an interesting mm. thought. It's the eighties. Mm. Yeah. So, so all those things, and then came up with this thing, and it was particularly because uh, Pete was married at that time to uh, his wife was the daughter of a bunch of people who owned a stately home down in the West Country. Mm-hmm. So he knew the big, you know, they'd, they'd yeah. actually, they had a wildlife park, that's how they scraped yeah. by, but they had the big house, so that's, they knew that territory. That's Domus, isn't it? Yes, yeah, 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 no, I just lived down the road, I lived in the Oval, in Domus, yeah. down the road. So he knew that sort of world, and, mm. uh, and so we wrote this... Um, Pete wrote it and I edited it and uh, we were again it's rather like my relationship with Rowan as a as a director you know we have an absolutely brilliant we're both much better as a result of working mm. together I don't think anyone directs Rowan as well as I do and I don't think anyone is as funny under my direction as mm. Rowan has been right. and Pete was the same as a writer we just you know he was as somebody who loved a good editor you hope to make mm. 5% 7% difference or catch a few mm. things he's missed we're very proud of this script we sent it to Penelope he said let's send this to Penelope Keith I said you're insane Pete why would she work for radio it's just not going to happen she's huge in telly good life and mm. huge in the theatre with Norman Conquest and things like that but anyway she agreed to come and I couldn't persuade the booker in radio to give her a decent fee so having done the show with Bernard Braden playing the, the, the chap she went straight off to telly with it and uh, to unlike Hitchhiker dear Pete said you know Lloydie you know come come with me let's you know quit your job um, yeah. we're going to be rich and famous come and write it with me so it was incredibly nice so I had a job so I couldn't just leave but I used to go down to Dorking at the weekends and we'd try and write the... Mm. It, you know, got commissioned straight away mm. to try and write an episode. And it was really odd. I learned a lot that few months because there's a huge difference between you're the producer, you know, the writer obviously is the creative god and you're there to help and try mm. and make it better, but at the end of the day, they're the principal. So I'd, I'd sort of... Speak and talk to him as if I were the editor. Oh no, Pete, I think you should do that. He said, No, you can't speak to me like that. Now we're we're equals. Uh-huh. You're not in charge of me. Mm. It's a cooperative process, and you've right. got to learn to listen. I, and I couldn't. It didn't. It didn't work. We couldn't. We couldn't find the chemical recipe huh. as a twosome in That's that configuration. Mm. So I, 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 that one I quit. Mm. Um, I said, I don't think this is really working, and I think I'll just go back and do what I do well. <laughs> but it did go on to, it was huge. The it's final similar. episode of the first series got 27 million people mm-hmm. watching it yeah. at Christmas, which is mm-hmm. the biggest audience for a television show, yeah. I think, outside the Olympics or something mm-hmm. like that. Absolutely enormous, yeah. I watched one the other day, um, it happened to be on, I was in. I was in uh, I was in Manchester, I was stuck there and, I had a, and it was on at about quarter past three in the afternoon. I was like, oh, I'll just watch this. <laughs> was it good? Yeah, it's funny. It was great show. Just like, it was the episode about there was meant to be a party happening 
um, that is held. The hunt ball is held every year, yeah. and he he successfully manipulates her into organising it by getting Angela Thorne's character to do it. He's going to be hopeless, so you know it's all bluff and double bluff. Yeah, yeah. It was delightful and really, you know, plenty of jokes. Just it, but it just felt proper and it felt like it felt like a real situation, despite the fact that it was about rich people and whatever. Although she obviously isn't rich because she's had yes. to move out. It um it's just it felt there was a truth a truth to it, it just felt real um, and it's still still there yeah. I thought I loved it I did um and, and it's interesting how you described it there as a, almost like a you know kind of kind of playing mathematical odds almost of how how do you create a sitcom but actually in that sort of minute or so where you described how you created to the manable I mean that that that's that is the essence of how. Anyone should come up with a with a, a sitcom idea, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, that's but the problem is that that's where the difficulty arises. It, it, it is actually probably not very difficult to work out that that's how most sitcoms mm. work. But mm. all rules, pretty much without exception, certainly in any rules of creativity, they're all rules of thumb. Mm. You know, one of the rules is you should have a, you know a limited number of. Uh, characters in the sitcom who have major parts. You can have postmen drop in as mm. sort of messengers and plot movers on, mm. but essentially it's yeah, five or six people, isn't it? And then Dad's Army comes along. Hang on a minute. Yes, that doesn't work. Well, it's well, it's far too many. <laughs> you know, we never all the rules in Blackadder are broken because there was always a huge, or nearly always a huge guest role. Mm which is not, it's supposed to be, you, you play with the relationships of the people you know, not mm. bringing them, you know, Sir Walter Raleigh or a Duke of Wellington. And, yeah. But I think what you were saying then, mm. James, to add, to add to that, you know, this is this is what you need for a sitcom, but, but as long as there is a sort of true, an emotional truth at the heart of it, then then you can sort of go off and do, do those things. But... Yeah, yeah, no, but it's, plus an emotional truth is a, mm. it's a, it's the foundation really. This is why we yeah. we do. I mean, I don't know. People say comedy is the hardest thing to do in this sort of area, but I don't know because that's all I've ever done. I don't mm-hmm. know. It seems very hard to me, but I don't know whether it's harder than you know doing a straight play or something. Yes. I don't never done one, but what we do know is okay. So you work out what the sitcom theory is and then you say okay well now we're going to have characters that people like and we're going to have emotional truths and you know mm-hmm. ideas and it still could be completely unfunny even yeah. if those things are correct and then there's yeah. another you know you have to get to that and now it's also mm-hmm. got to be funny that it's a big ask isn't it Dave mm-hmm. it is a, well it needs, to, it needs to have a soul it needs to be mm-hmm. uh, there needs to be a reason for the show and that's one of the few things that there are lots of things commissioners and controllers say that make me want to scream and and um, flip their desk over. But one of them is, which I've realised, I think is a worth asking, is why why is this show on now? Mm. You know, why 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 could this show not have been made ten years ago? And why is it? I think there's a like there's a not so much. It has to be contemporary, but there needs to be there needs to be a reason for this show to exist. And I think it goes back to what you were saying at the start about shows that matter and shows that don't matter. Mm. I think it's fairly easy to assemble a show that doesn't matter, which technically works. All, and, you know, that all the characters, it's it's sort of going through the motions, really. But then there just needs to be that that show that exists for some reason and it's got to have something about it. In the same way that Spitting Image just felt like exactly the right show at the time. Mm. For that, I, I don't know, I don't know what Black Arts produced that, idea of like oh it should be puppets and it should be this and it should but there was a kind of it just felt right yeah Um, just going back to your thing James about rejection how do you deal mm. with rejection and I think it's one of the big questions is if you continually get rejected you need to ask yourself is this because you know you're the new Van Gogh and he was rejected by everyone all his life and and now he's one of the two or three most successful artists in the history of the human race Mm. Are you that person, yes. or is somebody trying to tell you something in a kindly way? This yeah. is really not your area. Yes. You yeah. should really be thinking about becoming a chauffeur or a boilerplate maker or something different. Because yeah. comedy writing isn't ever going to be yes. the trust because we don't have the right people doing the criticism. We some people will never know. Yeah, I mean, because I don't like rejection very much, but I am very, very determined. And if I if I'm sure about something, I don't. 
you know, I don't have that. I have lots of good little ideas. Mm. I think that every day you have lots of little ideas, but big ideas, I've only had a few. And so, uh, and also because I've, as we've been in that Paul McCartney situation, if you've done Spitting Rich, Blackhead, and Nine O'Clock News, mm. News Quiz, and you know half a dozen things that people say, you have to say that these are these are quite big names. Mm. Yeah, I've got very, I set the bar very high. I don't want to go to work and mm. do something that's yes, yeah, sorry, yeah, right. yeah. I want to do something that's bloody marvelous, something yeah. that's unique mm. and special, and is not like anything else. And uh, uh, and so, and because I know how hard it is to do it well. And even when you've done it well, you still don't get respect or good reviews or ratings. You can still find those levels. I mean, Spitting Image was turned down by, I think, every ITV company except possibly, I don't think we went to Border or Scottish Television, <laughs> but all the others. We trudged round and we had all we had was some postcards of Fluck and Law's print work mm. and a sort of half-working animatronic puppet of Nancy Reagan as a parrot. I can't remember why. <laughs> <laughs> and we, everyone said, well, well you know, puppets and, and politics, that's kind of like, you know... Toxic. It just doesn't work. You know, yeah, puppets yeah. for kids, aren't they? Punch and Judy for grown-ups. Yeah. We, don't, do, we don't, don't have any spaces for children's programme. And then we went to see Charlie Denton, at, who was the programme controller at Central, and he, you know, we were only in there 10 minutes, so I'll take, I'll, I'll take um, 26. What? <laughs> we're so used to being rejected. He said, no, yeah. no, no, I said, we can't do 26, Charles. We've got... I've got enough puppets. Yeah. So he said, well, would you settle for 13 then? Well, okay, we, could we have a break about six weeks in to catch our breath because we know how hard it's going to be? You know, again, it, got, it was terribly badly reviewed. Most of my friends wouldn't speak to me that year because they thought it was rubbish. And, and now it's in the pantheon and everyone mm. says, oh, I like the early funny ones, you know. <laughs> yeah. Can't wait, can you no, see? So it, it's... Yeah. Uh, mm. But I mean, it's a measure of uh, when you say, well, I've only had half a dozen big ideas. I mean, we've been talking for an hour and a half now. We haven't even mentioned, not the nine o'clock news, oh, yeah. those seminal uh, sketch shows uh, of, the, of the 80s. And, uh, and and QI, we've kind of talked a little bit around and, and Museum of Curiosity, I've finally mentioned now. But I mean, I guess, um, I don't know if you want to, if, if there's anything... I mean, more, more you want to well, add no, I, that, I'm, uh, I'm always just a, I'm just a, I'm a writing, I'm a writing geek really. So mm. I'm always interested in the. Well, let's talk about really, writing. What can you say? Well, no, only in that. Um, what, what talking about specifically about um, you know um, Ben Osborne Curtis, but other other writers you worked with, and presumably you're working with sort of newer writers as well, occasionally through QI and those sorts of things. Mm. What sort of um, what sort of mistakes do you see people making? Um, and what? Oh, okay. sort of, and when you read a script, what makes you think? Because presumably you still get sent an awful lot of material, because um, they sort of somehow yeah, hope that you uh, will please some magic dust. If any you're listening, please don't send me your sitcoms. <laughs> There's things I, I I absolutely hate reading other people's work. I don't mind watching it, mm. but because it's like I used to swim for the school when I was a teenager, and I actually hate swimming pools because of when I see a swimming pool, I think of the fear and the. The, the cold weather and yeah. and, uh, and the feeling of as your head hits the freezing cold water and whether you get to <laughs> not win the race or not and um, he started similarly, to roll backwards and forwards for those of you who are yeah, unable to yeah, witness this conversation <laughs> uh, and similarly I was a script editor for a year in radio and it nearly literally nearly killed me I got terrible sinusitis and <laughs> headaches and things so I was going home at the weekend with 40 sitcoms to read oh, and all I wanted was a reason to reject them so I would just get them off my desk so I understand. Yeah, but when so what? What? Uh, so maybe as a as a way of kids that must be here for decades, but as a way of finishing up, but just to think about, um, yeah, habits, good habits you see in young yeah. lives. Well, I can talk about this because I don't, um, you know, I don't do that sort of formal script editing of six sure, or no. sketches at the moment. Yeah. But I think the basic principles of writing are. Uh, universal and, and obviously we do a lot of writing at QI and so one thing I think is true is Einstein's great remark everything should be made as simple as possible but not simpler mm-hmm. so E equals MC squared is the simplest possible way of e- e- expressing mm. what he was on about but it doesn't cheat 
it doesn't go e equals m. That's mm. two. It's gone. You've over over <laughs> yes. that. Yes. that doesn't make sense. Yeah. So I believe in lack of pretension, mm. clarity, simplicity. Churchill used to say, "What's it? Um, the old words are best, and the old words, when short, are best of all." You know, so mm-hmm. you use plain English. So Orwell all, all as well was an advocate yeah. of the of the plain English language, wasn't he? In terms of um, the other thing is. Don't try to guess what somebody else will like. That's what I say to the QI researchers. Don't try and guess what I find interesting. You will never know what I find interesting. The only judge is yourself. So be true to yourself. That's an mm. ancient cliche, isn't it? The thing is, mm. if you don't find it funny, who the hell else is going to? Yes. It's no good putting in stuff you think, well, they're a bit of an idiot. They'll probably think this is funny. Don't try and please the coach parties. Mm. That's what... Uh, <laughs> do do what you love and try and you know it's about honesty writing is about honesty one of the things I'm most proud of is the meaning of lift that Douglas and I wrote all those years ago mm-hmm. and one of the reasons is it, we both thought it was the best thing we'd ever done we were so we still laugh at it to this day do you know what it is? You know? Oh, yeah. blimey, yes. I didn't even feel the need to explain yeah. to my listeners because yeah. everybody yeah. knows what the meaning of well, one of the things yeah. <laughs> Why it's so good is because if you're lucky, you turn up thinking you think I thought I was the only person who did that. Yeah, yeah. I got I got two lifts into the the more the more, uh, more one of the you did a new book of lifts. Oh, in afterlifts. I, I tweeted a couple of yeah. I did, I, did, I did two afterlifts. I can't remember what the words were because they I suggested place names that had already been taken. Oh, yeah. I think one of them one of them was one of them was about when you get to a table in a busy cafe and you have to clear the table yourself oh, yes, before yes, you right. can sit down at it. Mm-hmm. And then there was another one, I think, for when you go into a shop and you talk to a, uh, the person who works there and you immediately establish that you know more about the product than they do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think those were my two. And that was a bit of a punch the air moment for me. Because yeah. uh, also I remember in, I had, for some reason, I got older sisters, maybe they had it. There was a not 1982 annual of some sort and it was like a calendar is that the one with Charles and Diane no it was like it was almost like a tear a page off a day calendar kind oh, of yeah, thing oh yeah not 1982 yeah. animation yeah um, and I had I, I had it even at university in, in the 90s and then I lost it somehow it's infuriating because it's yeah. probably worth a lot of money but you also had some lift, lift type things yeah it was called the ox I think it was called originally the oxtail English dictionary yes or, 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 and there were quite a, a few of those I, re- I still remember to this day and one of them is the word pantry mine oh, yes. which is the act of if you're looking for a pair of scissors in yeah. your kitchen you then start making yeah. scissors shaped with you where are the scissors I need to that's pantry yeah. mine I think Pete Spence might have written that <laughs> well, it's a fine one but there were lots mm. of them I loved, I loved but them. one of the things what's so difficult about uh, being a comedy writer and not being a performer I think it's very hard so my uh writing ability if any comes from writing stuff and then going and performing them to small mm. audiences and then bigger ones in, in Cambridge and that like you said that the audience is a brilliant editor mm. and that's how stand-ups learn they get better by testing it out against a, a large mm. or small group of people and over the years you've got I got very good at my uh, I think I'm I, certainly at least 90% sure on any given line as to whether it will get a laugh or not. Mm-hmm. Because I've done it so much. It, and I'm very in tune because I like my audience a lot and I, uh, I'm not trying to please them. I'm trying to please myself mm-hmm. really honestly. And I spend a lot of time agonising about what is, which of these lines, like the lines you might have sent mm-hmm. in for lift, yeah. which of them fulfill that mathematical formula yes mm. this one is like it's this is not quite simple enough this one's too simple this yes. one is true but not funny mm. and, I, and I don't know why I know but I do know yeah. that I know yeah. yes. so one of the great uh, seminal moments of my whole life uh, which has changed what's happened to me over the last few years is um, as a result of the uh, well um, Afterlift sort of came about because um, Douglas Adams is, uh, would have been his virtual 60th birthday. Mm. So, so I'm 65, so he's six years younger than me. So 
was that uh, 2012 would it have been I think anyway something like that 2011-12 something like that his uh, we his friends usually put on a, a thing for him every year for the Douglas Adams Memorial Lecture usually at the Royal Geographical Society and because he would have been 60 this particular year his, his brother James um, decided to take the Hammersmith Apollo which is we all thought it was an insane decision how we can fill that of course the tickets went like yeah. that mm-hmm. and there was quite a stellar cast of people like um, you know Angus Deaton and uh, we had uh, David Gilmore from Pink Floyd and Gary Brooker from Brockle Harum and lots of comics and and James said I tell you what here's a good idea just before it all happened Let, let's do this let's have a meaning of live competition and uh, we'll put up a website and there'll be a prize of two tickets to the show for the, for the winner mm. so I said well, that, that is a good idea and he said will you judge it and I said yeah absolutely so he put up the site we had I think 200 entries I thought 100 of them were genuinely doable yes. yeah. and of those 100 got it quite different I got them down to about 20 that I thought were absolutely terrific as yeah. good as it got and on the night, um, he said, well, you'd go out and read out the winners. It's a big theatre, the Hammersmith Apollo. And I was, I suddenly realised I was terrified, absolutely terrified. I don't know why I got so frightened, but I was. catatonic with fear. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, I went out. Because I hadn't done that sort of thing for... You know, since the seventies. <laughs> I mean, I've given speeches, but that's different. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. I used to get nervous about those too. Yeah. But mm-hmm. proper comedy mm-hmm. in front of a proper geek, you know, mm-hmm. super geek audience with my peers around me—that's mm-hmm. pressure. It's not like going to a university and giving a talk. If you've got two jokes in it, yeah. you know, people feel grateful. Yeah. So I went out and I saw, you know, the lights, blinding lights, and the sense of whatever it's three and a half thousand people, whatever. And I suddenly remembered I knew how to do it. And I just went into the performer mode and I started reading these things out and I was on fire that night. The roof came off. They were absolutely gales of love. It was like a physical wind mm-hmm. uh, coming coming at me. And uh, uh, so... Uh, but I was so confident in the material. I wasn't yeah. confident in my performance, but I knew these jokes were very good all those years of experience. Um... What's the, what was the one that the one that won was P. Kirk, um, one who points out that there are no lavatories on the USS Enterprise. <laughs> <laughs> and there, there was a Kirk Welpington um, to the the noise and associated little dance after sticking sit standing on a Lego brick in bare feet, <laughs> and, and they were just great. There's, there's yeah. a, a perfection of them. Yeah. They were poetry, you know, and it, it was. Uh, mm. Yeah, so that the that going back to the writing thing, it's but the problem is that what we don't know is why is something funny. Nobody mm. knows that. All we know is that it's funny. Mm. And the only hope for anybody ever being any good at comedy is that you if it if it it should make you laugh. You should if if you're sitting with your writing partner, you should be struggling. That would be normal, struggling most of the time, getting bored, getting fed up, and going to the pub. Mm trying to block the the thing that won't let you do it, unblock the thing that won't let you do it. And then suddenly you should be howling with laughter, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, certainly when I was a young writer in radio and I would get asked along to weekending, be allowed to sit in the box as a great privilege and watch mm. Bill Wallace and David Jason and Nigel Reese recording a sketch. And I would be giggling away, unable to stop laughing. And mm-hmm. Simon Brett or whoever's producing said, John Wayne. Why are you laughing at your own jokes? And you say, well, <laughs> if I don't, who else is going to? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a mystery, but it is a wonderful, yeah. honourable calling. And uh, I was uh, doing this thing for Radio Four Extra last night with um, Jimmy Mulville and Beryl Virtue and Paul Jackson about comedy since the forties, and we all asked to uh, play a, a clip from a favourite comedy moment, and I asked for the cash register sketch from uh, this, uh, that Michelin web sound. Do you know that? 
Um, I do know that stuff quite well. I'm sorry, which one that is? Looking, looking up online, it right. is one of the funniest minute and a half of anything I've ever heard. It's it's just it's about a guy. It's a shop that sells cash registers. Okay. And he's trying to. Then oh, he says, "Well, I'll take that one." And he's trying to say, and you, "You hear them so ring out? Oh, sorry, that's one of the ones for sale. That's not the actual cash <laughs> register." And the timing of all the sound yeah. effects. Mm. Uh, and there's a me. Oh, that's oh, my yeah. daughter's saxophone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, doesn't even look like that. Trip me. It's just pure delight, and it's so it's so neat and poetic and exact that you sort of feel it could never have been any other way and if they never do anything else in their life that will always be Mm. one of my (laughs) favourite things and I'm just thinking I was sitting there in front of the 350 people in the radio theatre I mean literally crying with laughter I could not stop the tears coming I was laughing so much and I thought have you heard it several times yes yes absolutely and that's why we do what we do to get to that moment which is you are it is a religious experience to me and you have to surrender to that you are surrendering to the comedy and it's a privilege to be there it's Mm -hmm. a privilege to have written it to consume it to have performed it and oddly enough one of the studio managers Jill uh, whose works uh, often on Museum of Curiosity, she had been the person playing in the cash register oh, sound right. effects. <laughs> and I said, Jill, respect to you, because the timing, <laughs> impeccable. Well, you know, because it's yeah. framed in yeah. the time, it's just exactly then, and then the pause, then there is another one, you know. Amazing. Joy. Joy, yeah. That's why we do it. Thank mm. you so much. I think we should probably uh, bring this so. to a close. We should, yes. We've been. It's been uh, marvellous and uh, <laughs> educating, certainly for me, and I hope for uh, everybody else who, who listens, and entertaining. What's the BBC thing? To entertain, inform, uh, educate. Educate, inform, entertain. Yeah. Yeah. I think we've had all They dropped that for a few years, and then yeah. I think they've slightly brought it back. Right. I, 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 I don't pay that much attention. To it's me. a very good. It's a very good precept and mm. something that I really try to live yes. by every day. Yeah. It hasn't been improved upon, certainly. No. Mm. no. Thank you, John. Thank you for coming in and talking to us at uh, Sitcom Geeks. And uh, if anyone wants to contact us and um, talk to us about the show or come up with some ideas and questions, we are sitcomgeeks at gmail dot com. Yes, that that's right. Yeah. We don't get a lot of emails. But we do read them, so do yeah. send us an email. We do. Um, but, and um, we do actually even reply to them six months after they can send as well. <laughs> we do. Not very organised, I'm afraid. But thanks very much for listening, and speak to you next time. Thanks, Thank guys. You.